I watched that and I said, that, that is a better overview of 2 Corinthians that I could ever hope to give. Uh, it's, there's so many twists and turns. It's, it's one of the more complex letters because it's so embedded in uh, an ongoing conversation. It's really hard to get your bearings. And that does about as good a job as I've ever seen done with 2 Corinthians. It's awesome. Um, so I wanted to give that just to make sure that we got a, a good overview. Um, so that, that relieves me then from having to give a good solid overview of 2 Corinthians, which might take me 30 or 40 minutes. Uh, but here's what I want to do. Um, first of all, I want to remind us uh, of why we're going through Scripture the way that we are. Um, it's, it's really important. So that there are two, you could say maybe two or three things that are absolutely fundamental to our walk with God. And that is relating with him through scripture and having a prayer life. I would say the third thing is having a vital life of community and fellowship. Um, that is how we know God. When we say that the purpose of life is to know God, well, he has given us a rich treasure of ways to know him. But here's the thing. The Bible is not simple. Um, it's you can understand it. You can approach it. Anyone can receive life from it. But it is not simple. I will say it's not simplistic. Um, it's long. It spans thousands of years of history. Um, and to really understand, especially what Paul is doing, what Jesus' Gospels really reveal, uh, in the New Testament, we have to have a, a solid understanding of the Old Testament and the, the big picture story. So we have been marching through Scripture for three years. This is so that we can know God as a community. Right? This is not so that we can increase in biblical literacy or anything else like that. Although that is a great byproduct of what we're doing. Um, this is how we know God as a community. One of the markers of our community is that we understand the long view of the story of what God has been doing from Adam onwards. And we know how to approach that in Scripture... In a way that, that brings meaning to Scripture. So in other words, we don't just go hunting through Scripture for like the principle of the day, the, the proverb of the day that we can kind of use to build ourselves up. We want to be immersed in the story of God and see ourselves here. So that we can live as that new humanity. Live as the, so I want to encourage you, as we're going through, you know, don't, don't get bogged down. Don't, get, don't lose heart. Stay with it, you know, and, and realize what we're doing. It might be dry week to week, or a certain book might not speak to you, you know, shout in your face in the way that sometimes the Word of God does. But be a good student nonetheless, right? Get it inside of you. This is what we say. We want to get it inside of us so that at the, at the right time, the Holy Spirit can reach down and touch what we have stored up in our hearts to transform us, to give life to someone else, to give us wisdom in a particular situation. Okay? But we want to, first and foremost, be faithful to get the Word of God inside of us. And not just in a, in a factual way, but in a way that, that understands the big flow of the story. Does that make sense? This is, this is why we're doing it. So I wanted to encourage us this morning, especially with 2 Corinthians, it's easy to go through it and... There's some parts that sound good, but then your eyes sort of glaze over. It's like, okay, I can't follow this from one thought to the next. Where does one train of thought 
begin and the other end and, and that kind of thing. So I just want to say, zoom out. Remember why we're going through Scripture and, uh, and, and redevote yourself uh, to just get it inside of you. Um, so that's the first thing I want to say. Uh, the second thing I want to do is uh, to give just a little bit of background uh, for 2 Corinthians. There was a lot of background given in that video. Um, but this, this helped me. It, you know, 2 Corinthians is, is most, most people think it's, it's two letters in one. Um, there's some sort of break uh, from chapter 9 to chapter 10. Chapter 10 starts out when he says, I, Paul, entreat you, and then he goes on. The tone of chapters 10 through 13 are quite a bit different than the tone of 1 through 9. 1 through 9, he's talking about reconciliation. He's talking about comfort. He's talking about his, his deep love and, and, and uh, devotion to the people at Corinth. Chapters 10 through 13, the gloves are coming off. Okay? And he, he's, getting really, he's getting sarcastic. He's starting to kind of mock their way of thinking. So it helps me to kind of think of it in those two forms. We have one letter. It's probably two combined. One through nine uh, are, are one letter, probably the fourth letter that he wrote. There was a letter before 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. There was a letter in between there he called the painful letter. And then there's the fourth letter, which would be 2 Corinthians 1 through 9. And then the fifth letter, which would be uh, 2 Corinthians 10 through 13. So if you think of it in those terms, uh, it helps you sort of understand the context of the relationship. In all of this, like Titus is going back and forth, various people that work with Paul are going back and forth to Corinth, bringing correspondence and then bringing back reports to Paul. And that's what's going on here. Um, so apparently in between chapters 1 through 9 and chapters 10 through 13, he's got another report that really just frustrated him. Okay? And he writes 10 through 13. It's a really a sober warning letter. All right, so that... That's one thing. Uh, but So th there is a, a main flow of thought to 2 Corinthians. But there's also these, these chunks, these digressions that Paul has. And so what I want to do before I offer just kind of some big picture thoughts about um, what we need to take away from 2 Corinthians at this time. Um, is I want to go through, I have like four highlights, little you know, small bites in 2 Corinthians that um, can, can more or less stand on their own. They make sense in the, in the larger flow of the letter, but they can kind of stand on their own, and there's, there's some good things to learn and to know from these little smaller sections. Um, so the first one is, is sort of a larger section. It's, it's chapter 2, verse 14, through chapter 7, verse 4. I'm not going to go through that whole thing. Um, but if you, if you dig into that, what you will come away with is a deep understanding of the new covenant that we live under. It's crucial in understanding. And, and Paul talks a lot about in that section, beyond salvation, what we are destined for. Right? This glorious uh, union with, with Christ by the Holy Spirit and also the glory that is to come. Like at the end times, what we are, what we are going to end up being he, he hints at that, okay? And he's received, like he says at the end of 2 Corinthians, he's received visions of Jesus himself. He's been caught up into the third heaven. He's seen things that God had to give him a thorn in the flesh in order to keep him from being conceited, right? 
So he has seen amazing things about the purpose of God. And here in this section, chapters 2 through 7, 4, he's, he's tearing back the veil some. And so if you look at especially chapter 3, 1 through 18, I'm just going to read that as an example of this. Uh, and then chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. These are sections of, of 2 Corinthians where this deep knowledge of the purposes of God and the glory of God really starts to come through for us. And they're, they're sort of lifelong chew on this sections. Okay, So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull those out. Uh, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? This is chapter 3. Uh, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Guys, there is a new thing happening. Let me explain it. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the Spirit has now come and written on our hearts. If the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Hey, guys, you know in in the scripture where it talks about a flaming mountain and a pillar of fire and everyone was afraid to even go near it? There's something even more glorious that has happened. Can you believe that? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is is it taken away. This is a good little underscore of what I just said about the scripture. We want to be readers of scripture in a way that the veil is taken off. And that's through Christ. When one turns, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, and that's shorthand for the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You can't say it much more clearly than that. This is what's happening now. The same God that wrote His law on stone... In such a way that it caused Moses' face to shine and everyone to fear and tremble. He has with his own finger written his law on your heart. 
And you are now being transformed. Not your face isn't just going, but your whole life is radiating with glory. This is what God has wanted to do the whole time. He wants you to reflect who he is. And just as the law was so, was not able to do that, now by the Spirit, you are able to reflect who God is by the Holy Spirit. We're being transformed into his image. Okay? This should throw us all the way back to Genesis. We're being transformed into his image, which is why we were created. This is why we were created. Um, so then in, in chapter 5, he says, and again, these are just little chunks. They make sense in, in the larger flow of his story, but these are chunks to take away. You need to know that where these are in Scripture, because these are crucial, crucial parts. Um, another one is, is chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ, of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Now in the larger flow of thought, he's talking about, why do you look at me at what's happening on the outside and, and make judgments? Why do you regard me according to the flesh? Because what's happening is something that you can't see just with the eyes of the flesh. Let no one, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Right? When you regard Christ according to the flesh, you see someone weak, beaten, broken, hanging on a cross. When you regard him according to the Spirit, you see the triumph of God over the powers of sin and death. Right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Again, going all the way back to the original purpose for mankind. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. There's, there's so much in this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Listen to this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What he's talking about there is not um, like, poof, you now do all the right things. He's saying... Because of the work of Christ, because Christ set forth and, and was crucified and died and was raised, showing God's faithfulness, as we talked about in Romans, showing how he was going to stay faithful to his covenant and still accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. Because he has done that, now we can do that. We can become the righteousness of God. Because Christ has dealt with sin and freed us from all the power of that, now we can become... The righteousness of God. We can also have that same kind of faithfulness that through death brings life into the world and reconciles people to God. Um, okay. So that, that, whole, that whole section, chapter 2 through 7, is really uh, some fundamental teaching on life in the new covenant. Uh, really rich, 
uh, full of glory, full of stuff that, that you can spend a lifetime just chewing on and allowing uh, the Holy Spirit to, um, to take root in your heart. So the next little nugget uh, is in chapter 7. And this is great because it's, it's not really the primary point, but it's about true and false repentance. And if you've been through the foundations class, you know this section of scripture. Uh, but this is, this is good. I'm just going to read this. Chapter 7, verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you. Though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of... Uh, of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. So, a little insight here on repentance, right? He says, you know, feeling bad is one thing. But feeling bad can lead to one or two ends. You either feel bad and then just keep doing the same thing, or you feel bad and it leads you to turn, which is true repentance. And so he says, you know, no one likes to make someone else feel bad. But if the end of that is real repentance, there's, there's cause for rejoicing. And so we can, we can pocket that, and that's very valuable. Because as we work both in our own lives uh, to, to live a lifestyle of repentance, of turning away, there will be various points at which God puts, things, puts his finger on things in our life, and we... And causes us to grieve. This thing is grievous to me, God will say. And that, that, that cuts us to our heart. And the thing to keep in mind is that we're not called to live a lifestyle of, of feeling bad. We're called to live a lifestyle of repentance. And so we want to shun any grief that's worldly grief. But we do want to embrace grief that, that leads us to repentance. We do want to, to mourn our sins in a way that causes us to turn away from our sins. And that can be a healthy thing. So in our own life, but also, as we are walking with people as they're coming into maturity, we need to understand this dynamic. When we lead people into repentance, when we call people into repentance, we need to understand that, that this dynamic is, is at work. God will put his finger on things uh, and convict, uh, but Satan will come and he will bring condemnation. And we need to be able to keep those two things straight. Conviction leading to repentance is good. Condemnation leading to more sin is bad. Okay, so Paul's saying, I, I, I understand. I understand the, the two things here. And I'm glad that your life demonstrates that you were grieved and then you, it led you to uh, repentance. All right, so that's another little nugget. Um... Chapter 8, verse 5. He's, uh, he's explaining to them how the Macedonians 
uh, were able were um, stirred up in their generosity. And even even though they didn't have much to give, and even though they were kind of in a in a tough spot, they were able to give generously. And here's how he says it worked. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. I love that. And every time I I teach through the church foundation, I I, I say the basic idea is this. When you fully give yourself to God, He has someone that He wants to give you to. You can't fully give yourself to, to the will of God without Him eventually giving you to someone else. Right? And that's how it works. That's why you can't just be a Christian in isolation, even, even though, you know, in extreme cases, that's, that's possible, obviously. But the general flow is you give yourself totally over to God, and He says, all right, you're at my disposal. I'm going to give you to people that need you. And that's what had happened with the Macedonians. They had so fully given themselves to God that when this opportunity to meet need came up, they didn't care what kind of situation they were in. They said, yes, we have been given by God to this ministry. We are going to do it. And Paul was saying, they really understand what it means to live in, in response to the gospel. They have given themselves to God and then by the will of God to us. That's awesome. In, in, church, in church life, that's a great little nugget. Given to God and then by God to a people. And then finally, uh, in chapter 9, just some good teaching on, on generosity. Not, I mean, certainly financial generosity, but also why financial generosity is important. It speaks of something in the character of God. And, and the video pointed at this. It's not, this is really a summary of what he's been saying all along. That God, in his glory and his honor and his wealth, made himself poor. So that people who did not have glory and honor and wealth could be made glorious and wealthy and rich in the grace of God. And so financial generosity in, is, where, is where the gospel is coming to bear on the Corinthian community. He says, this is a great test of your hearts. Are you allowing God's inexpressible gift, he calls it. Do you really understand it as an inexpressible gift? Do you understand what God did? What his love looks like? And are you allowing him to, through you, demonstrate that uh, to people that need it? Um, So in in verse 6, he says, uh, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. 
by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. What a, what a, what a line. They will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Do you confess Christ? Does your life confess Christ? Is it submitted to the will of God? Submission speaks of your confession to the gospel of, Christ, of the gospel of Christ. Um, and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. You want to show the grace of God? Do things that require the grace of God. Serve in a way that requires the grace of God, that tests, that stretches the grace of God. Because you can't outgive God. So, do you want people to see just an amazing outpouring of grace? Well, give yourself. People will see God's grace come into your life in ways that they didn't even realize. And this is true. It says, God loves a cheerful giver. When he sees someone who is, uh, who with every ounce of his uh, substance, his wealth, is seeking how to give that, how to, how to pour that out to, to bless others, he loves to pour it onto that person. This is a, this is a, this is a fact. Um, now I'm not saying like, you know, a televangelist, you know, you sow into this ministry and God is going to bless you a hundredfold. That's not what I'm saying. That would be a worldly application of this principle. It's your heart. If you, if you have submitted yourself to Christ and you really see how every blessing that you've been given is meant to be a blessing, God loves to keep pouring on the blessing. And, uh, and you know, I'm a testimony to that. I, I, every time when I think, I don't know, I, you know this is, this is going to kind of stretch, it's like God is going to laugh. Like there's no, there's no, uh, there's no need, there's no want, and you end up better than you were in the first place. Right? I'm not making any mathematical guarantees here. I'm just saying that when God sees a heart that really wants to give, He loves to resource and pour fuel on fire uh, where He sees it burning. Um, particularly, particular application may vary. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Uh, okay, so those are some nuggets from Second Corinthians. I think some more isolated sections that we can really uh, grab a hold of. So some some big picture thoughts. He's Paul is is trying to explain, and this really runs through First and Second Corinthians, how the new covenant, the gospel, the message of Jesus applies to all of your life. It turns everything upside down, and it, it, it wants to get into every nook and cranny of your life and change it and transform it. Okay, the gospel is that. It is an all-pervasive thing now that wants to transform us completely. Right? It starts by the Holy Spirit, in Rome, like we see in Romans 8. It, it's, and then we become transformed, not conformed to the pattern of this world, but transformed by a work that God has done in our spirits. And it's him writing his law on our hearts. And what is that law? It's the law of love. Loving God, loving one another, 
And that applies to all of life. And Paul had spent considerable time with the Corinthians explaining this. Um, and so for these books, First and Second Corinthians, his personal relationship with them is different than Romans. He hadn't ever been to Rome. He knew some people in Rome, but he hadn't ever been there on the ground working with the church like he had in Corinth. Okay? So his personal relationship with the Corinthians allowed him to be extremely specific in helping them appropriate the gospel into all areas of their life. And so the things that he's really specific about are, are areas that he knew from first-hand experience needed to be transformed by the gospel. Okay? The Corinthians seem, they, they keep getting hung up on, on a few things, like they're unable to see how the gospel really does transform such and such area. Okay? Um, they can't seem to embrace the radical claim that the gospel has on their lives. Um, and as a result, they're, they're muddled in issues of uh, sexual purity, um, cultural holiness, ex- being set apart, living different from the pattern of the world. They also have issues uh, with conducting their relationships in a way that reflects the gospel. Uh, the kind of relationships, you know, the unified kind of relationships that should mark a mature uh, community by the Holy Spirit. Um, so, here's what I want to say about all that. There, there's a danger in looking, into, in looking into this correspondence and trying to uh, pull out a principle to live by like here and now. Because of the personal nature of this book, there's a danger to doing that. Okay? But at the same time, okay, so on, on the one hand there's that danger. At the same time, The fact that Paul is agonizing over the Corinthians' uh, ability to allow Christ to have full claim on their lives. And he's saying, yeah, you acknowledge this, but you haven't gone all the way. You haven't allowed the Holy Spirit to really turn you upside down in this area, in this area, in this area. Uh, It should make us soberly examine whether we allow the gospel to have full claim on our lives. Okay, so we can get confused, and I think it's dangerous to try and go into the, you know, portion where it's talking about meat sacrificed to idols and say, all right, what, what's the meat of today? And what are the idols of today? I don't know if that's as helpful as us seeing how Paul was saying, listen, you've got a lot going on here, here, and here, and that's great. But the gospel hasn't transformed this area, and this area, and this area. Are you going to let it? And if not, are you sure that the Spirit of Christ is in you? Because if the Spirit of Christ is in you, it is transforming every area. And we can look at everything from our bodily habits, our passions, to our gatherings, the way we treat one another, the, true, the, the way we evaluate the leaders that God brings into our lives, the way we give, all of that stuff. Are you allowing the gospel, the real story of what the gospel is and who Jesus is, And what the faithfulness of God really looks like. Are you allowing that to be the formative principle? By the Holy Spirit. Not just just, uh, trying to look like that on the outside. By the Holy Spirit, are you allowing the gospel to transform you into the image of Jesus? So does that make sense? There's a lot for us to pull from these letters. But it can be hard to figure out what exactly that is. (laughs) 
For the Corinthians, it was very clear. Paul had very specific applications. For us, we need to look at that and say, all right, that was, that was going on. Now, are we a community that seeks to allow in every area the gospel of God to come and, and make us like Jesus? Uh, all right, does that make sense? Uh, the, the takeaway, is it, does the danger make sense? So here, here would be a dangerous thing. Paul was full of affliction, right? He was a mature leader. He, he experienced persecution, affliction. So what that means for us is if we don't experience persecution and affliction, if we're not poor and beaten, we're not really mature Christians. That would be one kind of, I think, false application of, of these books. It's not really what Paul's saying. Um, that's not, you can't just isolate that. Paul's not saying, all right, this is how I've lived, and now that's how you should all live. That's not his point. So there's a danger in that, right? Because we live in 21st century America. We are very wealthy. You know, some of us in here are more wealthy than others. <laughs> but we, we as, as a whole, are very wealthy. And we have different issues to deal with. We're not apostles who have been called to uh, be stoned and, and, and uh, mocked and you know, really experience that anguish and agony to form the, the Church of Christ. So we can't apply those things to our life. But what, we, what, can, we, what can we take away? Um, I think what we can take away is that, um, it's just what I'm saying, that, that the, the, the gospel wants to get into every area of our life. So if there's areas of our life where we just kind of keep closed off to uh, what the video called the cruciform pattern of life, if there's areas in our life that we don't think about in terms of death and resurrection. Death according to the pattern of the world, resurrection and the power of God. That God wants to get a hold of those things. And that he's coming for those things. So his big emphasis in, in really both of the letters is on this totally upside-down pattern of the cross. That you can't think through it in worldly terms. It will not make sense to you. You cannot just go and say, all right, I want to live a, a cruciform life. That's not going to happen. It has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. Wisdom, power, those have both been flipped on their heads. So he's not as much um, concerned with examining the way in which Jesus' resurrection and death deal with sin as like a, a once-for-all atonement. Like, all right, you've been saved because Jesus died. He's concerned with saying, all right, Jesus died, so what kind of lives should we live? What kind of lives really will the gospel uh, make us live? Even though it's true that, yes, God accomplished some things that only he could accomplish on the cross. We're not going to atone for the sins of the world by our laying down our life. But we are going to reflect his glory. And we are going to be able to proclaim who he is uh, by allowing him to, uh, to send us into the grave, into whatever sort of self-sacrifice uh, he desires. Um, does that make sense? Does anyone struggle with those thoughts of like, well, it seems like mature Christians will just suffer? Uh, and if there's not really suffering in my life, how, how can I call myself a real Christian? Does anyone else 
think that way? Yeah. yeah for sure. How do you how do you deal with it? How do you? Well, I, if I'm thinking like sometimes I'll be like, wow, you're off the cross for anything. And then here's Paul, he's like a shipwreck, like twice. Yeah. You know, starving in prison. And then I come back to thinking about, well, who is God saying that we are? And who is God saying that I am when I go to him and worship him? And what does it call me to do? And if I give myself to that, well, then praise be to God and the Spirit. Um, you know, to, to go off and say, all right, my life, needs, my life needs to look like this. It needs to be marked with suffering and this and this and this. That would be, I think, uh, doing the exact opposite of what Paul's saying. Saying you can't, you can't regard, you can't compare yourselves with one another, he says in one place. He says, you don't look around and say, well, on the outside, here's what it looks like. So that's, that's the way to judge. There's an issue of the heart here. For me, Paul, it's my life has been so transformed that look at all this stuff that's, that's happening to me. Look at all these signs of success. <laughs> and at the end, he's like, he's it's like layers of, of irony. Where he's like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on boasting even though it's foolish. But I'm going to keep boasting because you guys are into boasting. You know, you're into boasting. All right, let me, let me tell you what I've done. Uh, and he lists all these things. And he's saying, I'm saying, I'm talking like a madman. Right? Because only a madman would go around saying, well, here's what my life looks like. I must be a Christian. So we shouldn't say, alright, well, my life needs to look like some suffering poor apostle, and that will make me a Christian. That would be foolish. Right? Um, so that's one way to look at it. You, do, you don't decide for yourself what your life should look like. Now, don't, don't close yourself off from any sort of uh, act of, of sacrifice. But also, don't decide which act of sacrifice and which outward appearance you need to adopt in order to be a real Christian. Right? It doesn't have to be necessarily even, uh, you know, real drastic acts of self-sacrifice. Well, a, a, a real Christian in this community would, you know, they do such and such. Well, don't decide that. Allow the gospel to get a hold of you. Well, a real Christian would give, you know, 15 or 20 percent in their time. Don't decide that. And Paul's saying, what the point is, let God get a hold of your heart and then be obedient. And if it means giving away everything, great. But it, never do it under compulsion or for appearances or anything like that. Uh, let God take you. Let God lead you. Let God give you away. And then watch what happens. It's good. Alright, so I'm... I'm this is probably bringing up some questions or some, some other comments, and I'd like to have a conversation. Maybe we can continue it in our uh, home groups. But any other, any other like confusion here? Because I'm reading this, and it's like, how do you, how do you, how, how do we live in this, in the truth in this book, right? How do we actually be the community of God here? Uh, we're not persecuted. We have so much freedom. We have so much wealth and resource. 
How do we do this? Do we have any, any uh, thoughts or, or questions? Yeah. <clears throat> well, um, I see what you're saying in Corinthians. Uh, we can be balanced by uh, Paul's words to Philippians. He said, in Philippians 4, whatever you learn, receive, heard, and see, and you practice these things. Mm-hmm. He's not talking about you know, being a martyr and being stout or anything like that. He's talking about his walk with God. And then there is one thing I think we can all kind of suffer as Paul does, and that's in uh, Romans, he talks about that he has great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart for his brothers to have come to Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also in Philippians, that's where he says, I know how to abound, and I know to ha- how to have nothing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I think that's a that's also, I think, a good balance to bring to this book. Do, so, do we know how to abound? There's a right way to abound. And there's a wrong way to abound. There's a right way to have nothing. And there's a wrong way to have nothing. You could be a lazy idiot who needs to make some money so that you have a base of ministry to be able to offer people some, something actually of value. <laughs> right? <laughs> To be able to offer hospitality, right? Or you could be uh, a selfish person who, who, if you started to give away more, you, you might find yourself abounding even more. But you need to take, you need to take some risks. You lay some stuff down. Right? I'm, not, I'm not speaking to anyone in, in, in particular. What I am saying is we need to ask ourselves every question from each angle really allow God to, to get a hold of our hearts so that's the bottom line when, when he says at the end here examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith you guys are lauding these super apostles why? for very superficial reasons are you sure that are you sure that the spirit of Jesus is in you? Do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right. <laughs> We're not trying to make ourselves appear like we've met the test. Let's not, let's not go there. But we want you to do what's right. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Um, Alright, so it's tricky. Right? This, this book, kind of, for, for me, brings up more questions than it does give answers. Uh, but I, it, as I come back to you know, chapter 2 through 7... When he's talking about, here's what's really going on. There's, Christ has come and he has established the new life. And it's by the Holy Spirit. And as you, as you figure out what God is really up to, what he's always been up to, and as you allow yourself to be transformed by that, 
you're going to find yourself having a totally different set of values the way you approach your life. Now, he knew where those values needed to be touched on with the Corinthians. Um, do we know where our values conflict with the gospel? And are we allowing him to transform us in those areas? Um, so that's, that's, I think, the challenge. Um, so, we're going to do communion. And the ultimate uh, expression of our values as a community, this is it. Uh, that, that Christ became a man uh, and, and, uh, and in an expression of the faithfulness of God, forsook all of his honor and glory, became poor, became broken. Uh, his very body and blood broken and poured out for us um, so that we would know the love of God, so that we would be reconciled to God, and also that we would receive the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, the way it happens uh, is, is the way that Jesus showed us, and the way that Paul was, was also showing us. And we need to, the only way to do it is for the Spirit of God to invade our hearts, and through, through that to invade our lives, uh, so that the cross could come to bear on every area. It all needs to be uh, touched with uh, this truth. And so that's one of the reasons we do this every week. Because we know that. And we want to confess that this is, this is the chief good. That this is what life is about. That this is the saving uh, power of God. And this is uh, the ministry that he has entrusted to us. Uh, to live for each other and for us as a community to live for the world. So, you want to come up and, uh, like always, you can spend a, a few minutes in prayer if you want. Um, and uh, so, yeah, let's just remember that he who was rich for our sake became poor, so that we might become rich. And this is uh, that richness being able to have the life of Jesus inside of us, to live his very life by the Holy Spirit. What wealth! What grace. Uh, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Uh, so I'm thankful this morning. And I'm thankful to be able to come and partake of this uh, inexpressible gift. So let's come in humility. Let's examine ourselves. Um, if there's anything that we know God has called us to turn away from, let's, uh, let's do business with him. If there's anything that we need to share with each other uh, in terms of reconciliation or... or um, we know that anyone has anything against us or we have anything against anyone, uh, let's make that right. And let's come and, and proclaim that this deals with sin and brings unity uh, to the body. Let's pray. Jesus, we honor you. We thank you that you uh, did become poor. And so we want to come and uh, partake of your body and your blood. We thank you that on the night that you were betrayed, you took bread and gave it to your, to your disciples. This is my body broken for you. And you took the cup and you blessed it. And you said, This is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. So, Lord, we remember you, Lord Jesus. And thank you uh, for your inexpressible gift. And we ask for the grace uh, to become like you, to be conformed into your image. To be for each other and to be for the world what you are for us. And we thank you that that is possible. That we can live in a way that we are created to live. And by the faithfulness of Jesus. Thank you. In his name. Amen.